Hi, my name is Donald Quist and welcome to the Seinfeld Book Report, a podcast about what folks were reading in the 90s sitcom Seinfeld. Today we're looking at The Jacket, the third episode of season two. I'll talk about my love of art from the age of anxiety. I'll also rant about toxic masculinity, taking care of suede, and why I'll never give up hope on Kate and Leo becoming a couple. Giddy up. Welcome back, dear listener. I'm so glad you're here. It's me, your buddy, your pal, Donald Quist. We are in episode five of the Seinfeld Book Report. It's lovely to know that it's connecting with people out there, that it's... I got some nice messages, some nice emails from folks. Um, Got an email from Apple telling me that this podcast was ranked 88 on, like, a, I guess, a list of podcasts that deal with TV and film. And that, I was, <laughs> I was like a cartoon smelling a pie um, for a while. I was floating. That could be a weird reference for people. But if you imagine a cartoon who has smelt a pie on a windowsill um, from a 1920s cartoon, that was me. That's how I felt. So all this to say, thank you for listening. I'm glad you're here. I really appreciate it. And we're going to keep going. Today we're talking about the jacket. We're going to start with our first segment, as always, corrections, which is an opportunity for me to address stuff I've said in previous episodes. It's, it's a way for me to check myself. So here are corrections. One of the things I wanted to address from the previous episode is Marlene. I talk about Marlene the character that appeared in the episode The Ex-Girlfriend. I talked about Marlene's southern accent and how it felt like she was a surrogate for what writers perceive southerners to be. I want to go a little bit more into that. In media, one of the groups of people that I feel like often get minimalized for comedic effect are Southerners, <laughs> are American Southerners and Midwesterners, um, specifically in pieces that revolve around coastal plots. So here's what I mean. In the 90s and the 80s, and still to some extent today, if there's a character that is perceived as being from the South, oftentimes they are turned into a kind of joke, or their accent or dialect is used to denote to the viewer that they're supposed to be of lower intelligence. Still, this idea that whenever we hear that southern accent, we should be thinking of a a yokel or someone not classy or of lesser intelligence, which is ridiculous. Some of the finest writers we've had throughout time have come from the American South. The American South has birthed culture, uh, class. I mean, they're freaking cotillions. So I get wary when I see characters like Marlene on screen. It can be... It can be insensitive in many ways. It can be a way to diminish. I've seen uh, some of the smartest individuals I've ever known from the South get patronized because of their accent. 
the Midwest, this happens too. Um, there isn't really a Midwest accent, but the idea of the Midwest as the whole thing being this flyover country. I was guilty of that to some extent too before I moved to Missouri. Um, I didn't really spend a lot of time thinking about the middle of the country. All I knew was Chicago, I suppose. But that is really reductive of the majority of the country. I can see in many ways how this hurt Seinfeld in the long run. Um, Seinfeld as a series ostracized a lot of audiences in the South and the Midwest. By doing the show, a lot of people have come out and told me, oh yeah, I don't like Seinfeld. So people are telling me this. And a lot of times when they're telling me why, they cite how much the show was sort of uninterested in relating to a majority of the country. And, you know, I don't I don't believe an artist or artists or art should have to try to cater or morph itself to meet the demands of the mainstream. If you have a vision as an artist, like, go for it. Like, you don't have to try to make this work for everyone. But a 90s sitcom that largely ignored large parts of the country and oftentimes had jokes about how those parts, I don't know, were simple or not worthy of attention, that's not cool either. Uh, a piece can be set in a place without having to diminish another place or another group of people. So, these are corrections. Now, let's get into the episode. Okay, The Jacket originally aired February 6th, 1991, and here's a little overview of the episode. Jerry's shopping for clothes with Elaine, and he finds a suede jacket that he digs. He has doubts about buying the jacket because it is expensive. We never see the actual amount, no one actually says the amount, and that's like a running gag in the episode. The jacket has a pink and white candy stripe lining. So, two strikes. It's expensive, and Jerry doesn't like the lining. He ultimately decides to buy the jacket, because the homie looks good in it. He really does. And I, like, truly, he does look good in this jacket. They did a great job with costuming. Kramer asks Jerry for Jerry's old leather jacket, since Jerry will no longer need it. That's That little move is going to pay off later. The next night, Jerry, Elaine, and George are supposed to have dinner with Elaine's father, the famed writer Alton Benes. While preparing for the dinner, George arrives at Jerry's apartment with the song Master of the House stuck in his head. Master of the House is from the musical version of Les Miserables. Both Jerry and George are anxious about meeting Alton because Alton is a big deal. I'm going to talk more about this later the idea of a literary fiction writer being a big deal to the point where you get nervous. This, Anyway, I'll come back to that. Kramer enters the apartment and asks them to guard his illegally parked car for two minutes as he carries down some duffs that he is looking after for a magician friend. Classic Kramer. However, our boys Jerry and George refuse to help Kramer because he often underestimates how long things take to do. This will also be important later. 
Jerry and George make it to Alton Bennis's hotel. Elaine has not arrived yet, forcing them to wait with her father for 30 minutes. Lord. Jerry and George are made increasingly uncomfortable by Alton's socially awkward and intimidating manner. When Elaine finally arrives, she explains that Kramer promised her a lift if she would wait in his car for two minutes. He returned over 20 minutes later, and the car had been towed for being illegally parked. See, it paid off. On their way out, they notice it is snowing. Jerry knows snow would ruin his suede jacket and asks Alton if they can just take a cab. But Alton replies that the restaurant is only a few blocks away. George suggests Jerry turn the jacket inside out to protect the suede. But because of the candy-striped lining, Alton insists that Jerry turn it back. He also, Alton, also silences George when George starts singing Master of the House. The next day, Kramer notices Jerry's jacket hanging in the bathroom, badly damaged by the snow, and asks Jerry if he can have it. See, that came back too. Elaine tells Jerry that her father had a good time, even though he usually hates everyone. As Alton drives home, and we get a shot of Alton Benes in his car, Alton finds himself singing Master of the House from George from Les Miserables. And that's the episode. Um, the gang is going to have dinner with Elaine's really weird, like, homophobic, overbearing, literary fiction writing father. Our boy Kramer has a friend who's a magician, has no concept of time, and ends up with two jackets. Seinfeld fun facts. Seinfeld fun facts. The episode storyline was based on a true story. Okay, it's based on creator Larry David's personal experience when he was dating Monica Yates. And Monica Yates is the daughter of the writer Richard Yates. He wrote Revolutionary Road, one of my favorite books. So Larry David had actually just bought a suede jacket and met Richard Yates at the Algonquin Hotel. Larry David stated in an interview that Richard Yates was, quote, every bit as intimidating as Alton Ben is, end quote. Larry David's story is very similar to what happened in the episode, as when they headed out to the restaurant, his jacket was ruined by the snow. The jacket is the only episode in which one of Elaine's parents appears. Uh, Julia Louis-Dreyfus once suggested Mary Tyler Moore to portray her mother on the show, but the character never appeared. That would have been cool, though. Um, the episode also contains the first mention of Elaine's job as a manuscript reader for Pendant Publishing. In early drafts of the script, Elaine's job was supposed to be an optician. No. I don't know how... <laughs> I don't know why this feels so wrong to me, but Elaine is... It doesn't feel like she'd be an optician. Like, no. Her working in Pendant Publishing... It, it, it's like a chef's kiss. It's like right where she's supposed to be, especially with the idea of her having this like literary fiction writing father. It It's just perfectly suited. So I'm glad we avoided the optician thing. Just some general observations I have for this episode. For younger viewers and listeners to the show, or viewers of the show and listeners to this podcast, 
Jerry and George's discomfort must seem strange. Like how uncomfortable they feel around meeting Alton Bennis probably seems a bit weird for folks in the modern era. Weird talking about an episode set at a time in which a literary fiction writer could hold this level of cultural capital. Like, Jerry, at this point in the plot, has been on The Tonight Show a few times, and he's nervous to meet Alton Bennis. Like, what? I've also, this is kind of a digression, I've been re-watching Gilmore Girls with my family, and in several scenes, there are college dorm room posters of David Foster Wallace and Noam Chomsky, on the wall of like college dorm rooms it was a it was a different time y'all like there was a time where writers and scholars were like rock stars in this country you know to some extent some of that still still exists but not not to this like i don't i'm trying to find an equivalent Beyond someone like Stephen King or, yeah, maybe Stephen King's the only one. Are you going to find a poster in a college person's dorm room right now of soliciting or, like, is that going to happen? Truly. Like, um, there's no equivalent. There's no modern equivalent to that. Like, writing was so revered in this time in America. It's it's pretty so it's it's pretty wild to see on screen again. Um this episode also goes into toxic masculinity and everyday homophobia of the greatest generation and the silent generation. Jerry and George aren't the wokest of characters, but when put against Alton Benes you know, who probably served in the Korean War, maybe even World War Two. Elton is a really great model or example of just the way many members and men of that generation internalized homophobia and prejudice and toxic masculinity. So, like, this whole tough guy, drink scotch, this is not to disparage scotch, um, but tough guy, smoke cigars, like a man's man, you know, so unflappable in your masculinity and so strong, not a snowflake. You don't care about outside opinions. You do what you got to do, but ever so careful of your proximity to femininity. Like this makes Jerry and George makes them feel soft. You know, they feel inferior in their masculinity around this guy who is afraid of being seen next to another man in a pink candy-striped jacket, um, who is so, so nervous <laughs> in his proximity to femininity that he gets upset and silences George and stops him from singing a song from a Broadway musical. I mean, that's pretty, that's pretty wild. And I see this all the time. It's an everyday thing, but it, it seems particularly suited for folks of a certain generation. And I always found that kind of funny. So just an observation I had, 
Like, um, how could you be so scared of femininity that the perceived closeness to something other than masculine makes you soft? Or, <laughs> like, the, the, the sheer proximity to tenderness freaks you out. Um, so men listening to this, especially if you're younger men, you know, do better. It's okay. Wear your, wear pink. You know, I internalized the misogyny too. That For a long period, that was something I couldn't admit to. Just an observation I had. Quick little side rant. I, I, I'm an adult man. Like, I'm, I'm closing in on 40 and I still don't know how to take care of suede. Like, I don't. So it's, this might sound stupid, it's from a cow, right? Like, why can't I get it wet? Like, why does, uh, I had frustrated my mother so many times growing up. Um, she would get me shoes with suede, um, and I'd, I'd invariably mess them up time and time again. I just, and I know there's sprays you can use, like to try to minimize the damage to the suede. But I just, I'm not, I don't have it together enough to do that, to be responsible like that. So I don't, I don't know if suede is for me. Maybe it's not a part of my, that's not a part of my story. That's not a part of my future. Okay, literary references in this episode. I've mentioned one just a moment ago. So... George is singing Master of the House, which is a song from the Broadway musical version of Les Miserables, um, which is an adaptation of Les Mis, or Les Miserables, by Victor Hugo, written in 1862. If you don't know the tune that George is singing, if you haven't seen the episode, I'm going to hum a few bars. Um, but basically the tune goes... Love this song, and it gets stuck. <laughs> like even, even I just did that. I'm gonna be doing that for the rest of the day. Super catchy, but that is <laughs> that is the tune that George is singing. Um, so again, there's a Broadway musical that is based on Victor Hugo's Les Misérables from 1862. I admit this, I did not know Les Mis was written in in 1862, you know? I I didn't I didn't know Les Mis was this young, I guess. I imagined it had been written in the 1700s or even the 1600s for some reason. I didn't imagine Hugo being around reading news of the Civil War in America, you know? I didn't think about Victor Hugo potentially having thoughts on Lincoln. I I did not conceive that. Um, so that was super cool to address and find out. Les Mis, the novel contains a lot of subplots and digressions, but the main story is that of Jean Valjean, an ex-convict who becomes a force for good in the world, but cannot escape his criminal past. Or rather, he's not allowed to escape his criminal past because he's being pursued through many years and decades. I had to look this up because I didn't feel like counting this. 
The novel is divided into five volumes, each volume divided into several books, and subdivided into chapters for a total of 48 books and 365 chapters. Les Mis is roughly 655,478 words in the original French. Big book. Hugo explained his ambitions for the novel to his Italian publisher by saying, quote, I don't know whether it will be read by everyone, but it is meant for everyone. It addresses England as well as Spain, Italy as well as France, Germany as well as Ireland, the republics that harbor slaves as well as empires that have serfs, social problems go beyond frontiers, humankind's wounds, those huge sores that litter the world do not stop at the blue and red lines drawn on maps. Wherever men go in ignorance or despair, wherever women sell themselves for bread, wherever children lack a book to learn from a warm hearth, Les Miserables knocks at the door and says, Open up, I am here for you. End quote. So that is Hugo explaining his vision for this book, his ambitions for the novel. Swoon. Yes. Slay. Um, love it. More than a quarter of the novel's basically argumentative essays that do not advance the plot or the subplots. Hugo did this in The Hunchback of Notre Dame as well. Similar to Moby Dick in many ways, um, in terms of its digressiveness. So, pretty cool, right? Check it out. The second literary reference that we see in this episode is actually an ongoing reference throughout the entire episode. Alton Benes himself is a literary reference. So Alton Benes is a surrogate for Richard Yates, who was the father of one of Larry David's exes. Richard Yates was a very prominent writer through the later half of the 20th century. He wrote one of my favorite books, and the book that kind of propelled him to fame, Revolutionary Road. So it was his debut novel, which blows my mind, and it's about a 1950s suburban couple um, in Connecticut. It was a finalist for the National Book Award in 1962, alongside Catch-22. So, yeah, that's pretty. that's a good year. Revolutionary Road is set in 1955. The novel f- focuses on the hopes and aspirations of Frank and April Wheeler. Um, a self-assured Connecticut suburban night couple who see themselves as very different from their neighbors in a subdivision or a suburban subdivision called Revolutionary Hill Estates. It's a sad book. Um, it's a pretty sad book. And it deals a lot with American ennui. It is written in response to what is often labeled the age of anxiety. And the Age of Anxiety is an idea explored by artists like Edward Hopper in his painting Nighthawks in 1942. It's explored by composers like Leonard Bernstein and Bernstein's Symphony No. 2, colon, The Age of Anxiety, which was first performed in its entirety in April of 1949. The term, The Age of Anxiety, was coined by poet W.H. Auden, in his long poem, The Age of Anxiety, a Baroque Eclogue. In six parts, the poem deals in eclogue form. An eclogue is a poem in a classical style on a pastoral subject. And so in The Age of Anxiety, 
It is concerned with a man's quest to find substance and identity in a shifting and increasingly industrialized world. It's set in a wartime bar in New York City, and Auden uses four characters, Quant, Melin, Rosetta, and Embel, to explore and develop his themes. The poem won the Pulitzer Prize for Poetry in 1948. I love works that deal with the age of anxiety. I love many of these mid-century pieces. What I think I'm attracted to is the longing in them, inherent in them, the sadness, and how that reflects a longing shared by the country, a longing that this country sort of imbues one with. Again, I've said this in a previous podcast, nothing can be enough oftentimes. Our greatness, finger quotes, our largeness depends and runs on citizens feeling and believing nothing is enough. And a lot of these pieces reflect that. Following the end of World War II, here's a country that has saved the world. What comes next? What comes after you've saved the world? What comes after building a mythos that big? There's going to be anxiety (laughs) after that. And that's the anxiety explored in these texts. And I I really dig that because it's capturing a type of large-scale self-interrogation. I love those texts. They often help me illuminate aspects of my own life. They they help me avoid pitfalls of the American dream. Um, Revolutionary Road is super special to me. It actually changed my life. It was recommended to me by my writer friend, Callie White Van Bali, um, author of The Monsters We Make, author of several books of Midwestern Gothic themes. And I got this book and read it, like furiously and I really identified with the character of April I was at the time I was reading it, I was feeling like I was living a quiet life of desperation and like her I wanted to escape move abroad like find a way to enliven myself and I did I ended up moving to Thailand with my first wife and yeah we moved to Bangkok Thailand and I think it might have saved me in many ways because I felt like on the track I was on American ennui, like that sort of low rumble American depression that's very common amongst folks in the hustle, it felt like it was going to kill me at the time. And I feel like I dodged a bullet in many ways. And I still struggle with this to some extent um, all the time. But I... Thanks to that book, thanks to things like this podcast, thanks to folks like you who are listening to this and knowing I can go and make stuff for other people and like express how I feel, it provides a space for me to avoid living a quiet life of desperation. I'm living the dream. It might not be like the American dream capital America, <laughs> capital D dream, Um I'm making my own dream, and it's nice. Thank you, Revolutionary Road, for like coming into my life at a time where it made my eyes open. I was like, oh, crap, I'm doing this too, and giving me the courage to divest, to turn, to pivot into something better that ultimately emboldened my life and the lives of people I love around me. I also would like to talk about the film adaptation of Revolutionary Road 
it's a beautiful movie. It's a beautiful movie. And it was promoted as the on-screen reuniting of Kate Winslet and Leo DiCaprio. They hadn't been in a movie together since Titanic at that point. It was directed by Sam Mendes, who was Winslet's husband at the time. And he did just a fantastic job. I can't imagine, though. I literally sit up thinking about this sometimes. I can't imagine how Mendes must have felt navigating the chemistry between Leo and Kate. Was that difficult? Kate and Leo? We talk about twin flames sometimes. We talk about people like who knew each other from past lives. That's them, bro. Like, I love these two together. And perhaps it was... Maybe it's just me seeing Titanic at a very young, impressionable age. I don't believe so. I think it's more than that. Um, the love between them is so palpable to me. Leo helped with the kids following Winslet's last divorce, you know? Um, sometimes I cry just thinking about the happiness and pride on Winslet's face when Leo won his Oscar. I think of that moment, like, all the time. Oh, Leo and Kate, just make this work. Like, you're you're so amazing. Like, dear universe, please help Leo DiCaprio grow the hell up and bring these two together. Like, please. I'm going to be rooting for Leo and Kate forever. And, yeah, that's... <laughs> now you know that. I, I love Kate and Leo. I wish I could parent trap those two. Anyway, thanks for listening. We've come to the end of another episode of the Seinfeld Book Report. Thank you so much for listening. I want to give thank yous to some folks. Thank you to early listeners like Michaela Bombard. Um, thank you to Callie White Vimbali. Thank you, Nicole Brown. Thank you, Kaylin Capra Thomas. Thank you, Lacey Rowland. Thanks to my wife, Bailey Galen Moore. Shout out to graphic designer Justin Johnson for doing the logo for this podcast and for the enduring support. And thank you for listening. There's surely people I forgot to thank in this episode, but I will the next one because we're going to keep on rolling. I love this project. Sending you best wishes and well wishes for a good week. Much love. Till next time. I think we did. Pretty good. 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 Pretty